Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome, everyone, to the second panel in the Carnegie Global Dialogue series for 2022-2023. My name is Paul Hanley. I'm the director of Carnegie China, and I'm glad to be joined today by colleagues and friends, Ashley Tellis, Professor Han Hua, Ambassador E.J. Gokhale, on the state of China-India ties, as well as the implications for the United States. For those of you who are unfamiliar with our Carnegie Global Dialogue series, this is the 11th year of Carnegie China hosting this series, and it's a series of panel which discusses uh, China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspective of Carnegie scholars and other international experts at each of our global centers and across the globe. And uh, you'll be able to replay uh, this dialogue and previous dialogues on the China in the World podcast website. Turn, turning to today's discussion, I'm delighted uh, to have Ashley Tellis, Hanhua, and Vijay Gokhale with us. Um, I don't think he needs an introduction. I don't think any of these uh, experts need introductions, but I'll go ahead anyways in case we have new listeners joining us. Ashley Tellis is the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He specializes in international security and U.S. foreign and defense policy with a special focus on Asia and the Indian subcontinent. He served in the, on the National Security Council staff at the White House under President George W. Bush as a special assistant to the president and senior director for strategic planning in Southwest Asia. He was also commissioned into the U.S. Foreign Service and served as a senior advisor to the U.S. Ambassador, the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi. Ashley's written extensively, is, is uh, well-published, but just two weeks ago, uh, he rolled out uh, his latest book at the Global Technology Summit, organized by Carnegie India, called Grasping Greatness, Making India a Leading Power. Congratulations on that, Ashley. Next, I want to introduce Professor Han Hua, who is an associate professor and director of the Center for Arms Control and Disarmament at the School of International Studies at Beijing University. We're fortunate to have Dr. Hua back with us, who has previously participated in our global, global dialogue series. I think Ashley has as well. Um, in addition to Han Hua's role at Beijing University, uh, Han Hua has also spent time at Harvard's Belfer Center as a visiting researcher at Georgia Institute of Technology at the Stockholm Institute Research Peace, uh, Inst Inst International Peace Research Institute in Sweden, among others. He's written extensively on issues related to South Asia, arms control, and nonproliferation in world-class journals and media in China and abroad. Thank you for joining us, Hanhua. And last but not least is Ambassador Vijay Gokhale, who is a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie India uh, and the former Foreign Secretary of India. Ambassador Gokhale retired from the Indian Foreign Service in January 2020 after a diplomatic career that spanned 39 years. Impressive. Um, his last assignment uh, was as the uh, Foreign Secretary of India. Prior to that, he served as India's ambassador to China, to Germany, and to Malaysia. Very, very impressive uh, career in the Indian Foreign Service. He's authored a number of books on China, including, again, 
one that was rolled out at the, the uh, Global Technology Summit at Carnegie, uh, hosted by Carnegie India. His uh, new book is called After Tiananmen, The Rise of China. It's a sequel to his previous book, Tiananmen Square, The Making of a Protest. Congratulations to you on that, Ambassador Gokhale. Before we kick off, let me just quickly, a couple housekeeping items. Uh, we want to give the audience an opportunity to ask questions as well. To submit a question, use the chat function on YouTube. And again, we'll post this on the China in the World podcast website if you want to go back and see a replay or other previous uh, discussions. Okay, let me uh, say a little bit to set the context and we'll, we'll jump right in. Uh, China-India relations have grown increasingly strained over the recent years. Uh, notable hotspots, of course, include uh, the border tensions along the line of actual control, which reached a tipping point after the Galwan standoff in the summer of 2020. China's Belt and Road development as well through contested areas in the Kashmir region. Uh, and China's growing maritime presence in the Indian Ocean. And from a broader perspective, a tightening and, and, and improving U.S.-India relations, I think, also has added to some of that tension. Recently, there appeared to be some easing in the China-India relationship. Uh, both countries were able to reach agreement on pulling back troops from positions along the line of actual control near the Gogra Hot Springs. However, uh, just this week, another round of border clashes broke out near Tawang in the Arun Arunachal Pradesh region. Uh, and the situation on the border, I think, will be a key topic of discussion for us today. At the G20 last month, Prime Minister Modi and President Xi did have a brief exchange, um, although the two leaders have yet to hold a formal meeting since the Galwan incident in summer 2020. They also had a brief exchange, I might add, at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization conference in September. Um, from a broad perspective, the two countries do maintain, it seems to me, a number of convergent issues. China and India are both developing countries. They've been on the same side of several COP debates about phasing out coal production. And some analysts, and we'll talk about this in our discussion tonight, have noted that China and India's positions are not all that different when it comes to the war in Ukraine. With all of these factors on the table, uh, I'm delighted to be hosted, uh, delighted to host our, our three uh, experts for our discussion tonight. So let me kick off, if I could, with a broad question for each of you uh, to set the context uh, for our audience and our discussion. As I mentioned, uh, Xi and Modi had an opportunity to have some brief exchanges uh, as of late. Um, these uh, encounters uh, ended this period of silence, I guess you could say, that began with the Galwan standoff in 2020. Uh, nonetheless, the two leaders still have yet to hold this formal meeting, a formal meeting, in well over two years. So very broadly, and let me start with you, Ashley, if I could, I want you to each describe how you see the, the, the broad state of relations between China and India going into these encounters uh, by the two leaders. What, if any, impact did these brief exchanges have? And what is your expectation regarding relations going forward? So thank you, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. And it's great to be with colleagues whom I've appeared with before. Uh, let me 
try and answer that question in by offering two or three complementary thoughts. Uh, first, I think it's worth emphasizing that until the crisis of May 2020, uh, India was very careful uh, to maintain a working relationship with China that was as productive as could be given all the outstanding issues that you flagged. But after May 2020, I think the tragic events at Dalban really changed India's consciousness about China. And it was partly a product of the puzzlement uh, that Delhi sort of experienced with respect to why. Why did this happen? There's been a border dispute that has been sort of you know, unresolved for decades. Uh, there have been uh, various issues with patrolling these borders. But why did China make uh, you know, the effort this time uh, to be very pugnacious uh, in the way that it patrolled those borders? And the fact that there was a loss of life, I think, uh, changed India's attitudes to China. And I think the assumption there, uh, at least as I read it in Delhi, was that China had changed its basic strategy towards India. Uh, China had become conscious of its own power and therefore felt the need, did not feel the need to be as respectful of Indian equities as it was in the past. I think there's also the sense, and I hear this from the Chinese side, that uh, China felt that India and the United States were getting a tad too close for Chinese comfort. Whatever the, whatever the, uh, the motivations were, the bottom line is this, that the events of May 2020 really transformed India's attitudes to China. And all the hopeful developments that you flagged, uh, the sort of episodic uh, exchanges between the two leaders at various multinational meetings, uh, the broad convergence that both countries have on various multilateral issues. None of these, in my judgment, has fundamentally transformed the deep Indian suspicion of China that exists today. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. Uh, thank you for setting that that context. And it, and it allows me to turn now to Professor Hanhua because it would be very interesting, you know, to hear a Chinese perspective on a similar set of issues um, and how it's seen from the Chinese side, uh, the developments over the last couple of years, in particular since May 2020. Anhua, over to you. Yes, thank you. I'm honored to be uh, part of this uh, very uh, timing uh, discussion about the trilateral interactions. Uh, let me uh, emphasize uh, the process uh, after the 2020 uh, clashes. I, I think we are on the track of slowly going back to the normal track from the downturn after the Gowen uh, clash. But uh, I admit uh, we're still in the low level of the stability. I, I don't uh, think it's uh, fragile, the relationship, but still, I think a low level of uh, stability. Uh, the, the two arms forces have complete uh, some 
part of their disengagement in a number of disputed areas. So they are still working on the talks and find the new solutions to to solve the really the tough part of the contested areas. So I, I don't think uh, it's going to be easy because the both sides have not resumed the the commander level dialogue so far. If we really say um, maybe three three times uh, in one year this year, but um, we are looking for the next uh, round um, after maybe a little bit longer gap between the systems maybe uh, and the next one. So that means um, we are still in the, how to say, low level, um, I mean, the engagement between these two countries. But still, I, I think uh, the both sides uh, have already shown uh, their uh, intention to really stabilize the relationship. Even some uh, new event, just like a couple of days ago, what happened in Taiwan, and they are still quickly disengage each other and have a military dialogue immediately after the clash. So I, I still uh, cautious and optimistic uh, about the bilateral relations in the near term. Professor Hanhua, just one follow-up. Ashley um, gave some insights into his own thinking or speculation in terms of why it happened in May 2020. What's the thinking in China? Is there a common narrative that describes what happened in May 2020 that set off this, um, you know, this deterioration of relations? Uh, I think most of the scholars and also some, I mean, policy uh, circles, the people tend to think uh, the uh, re the recent, uh, how to say, uh, the dynamic behind the clash, still um, provided by uh, some new um, new construction along the border. They are really near the border. And we don't think uh, it happened uh, before so uh, rapidly. But now, after Moody especially, uh, the new uh, road, the constructive, uh, no, uh, strategic uh, road has been intensified in the in, um, construction. and really, really uh, close to the border where mm -hmm. this, uh, how to say, uh, the clash of this um, uh, between the two armies. I, I think mm -hmm. that's the most uh, uh, Chinese scholars uh, mm -hmm. think about the reason behind Thank that. You. Thank you. Ambassador Gokhale, over to you. Thank you, Paul, and it's a great pleasure and privilege to be with both Ashley and with Professor Huangfa. Uh, both of them are uh, old friends that I have known for many years. Uh, Paul, I broadly agree with Ashley's summing up of the relationship. Uh, the point he made about India being cautious in maintaining a working relationship 
with China. And of that feeling having changed after the Galwan incident uh, are absolutely spot on. The only point I would add to Ashley's comment was that aside from the fact that China uh, has changed its basic strategy because of its own power, is the additional point that it has perhaps also changed its strategy because it thought that India did not have either the capacity or the political will for geopolitical backlash when China engaged in low level or gray zone coercion. And I think that has changed with the Galwan incident in 2020. Galwan is a turning point because after 45 years, we have lost lives on both sides. And uh, this calls into question the entire modus vivendi that Deng Xiaoping and Rajiv Gandhi had built up, in which we had agreed that we would normalize our relationship on the clear understanding that until a settlement of the boundary question was mutually arrived at, there would be peace and tranquility in the border, and neither side would use force or threat of force. Chinese action, to my mind, has not only called those two treaties or agreements into question, but the much larger structure of the relationship. I do respect uh, Professor Hanwa's uh, explanation of why she thinks or why the Chinese side believes that Galwan uh, uh, became uh, such a big incident. But I respectfully disagree with that argument uh, for two reasons. First, uh, I think she is referring to the road that was being built, uh, which is popularly known as Shok Darbuk Daulatbek Oldi Road. Now, this road has been built or is being built for the last 10 years, to the best of my knowledge. And the Chinese were well aware that it was being built for the last 10 years. Therefore, it defies explanation as to why they should wait until the ninth year before they respond or they react. Secondly, I think we are now in the technology age when satellites will show which of the two countries have built roads closer to the line of actual control. And I don't believe there is any contest. There is no doubt that China has built many more roads, airfields, logistics facilities, far closer to the line of actual control in all sectors than India has done. Therefore, the argument that because India was building a road in subsector north, this was a trigger for the incident, uh, to my mind, rings a bit hollow. Uh, for my two bits worth, I would like to put forward what I think might be the reasons for this. The primary reason is that China continues to view India from the prism of its relationship with the United States. It does not accord India any independence, any autonomy, or any agency of its own. It believes, rightly or wrongly, that a closer relationship between India and the United States is automatically harmful for China. But the counter question that I could pose to the Chinese side is that on which parameters would China judge that India's relationship with the United States is bigger than their own? In terms of investment, no. In terms of trade, not by a long shot. 
in terms of the number of Chinese and Indian students in the United States, China still has the largest number. In terms of technology, there is a greater transfer of technology to China than to India. And therefore, it appears to me that this is an excuse for what is essentially a power play and for not giving India any independence or autonomy or agency in making its own decision. Yeah. I, may, may I make a comment? Sure, please do. Yeah, Ambassador's uh, argument is saying uh, that China um, just so want to show their unhappiness about the closer relationship between U.S. and India. That's the reason for the clash in in uh, June 2020. I don't believe that. I never heard about uh, any people talk about uh, uh, Indians will be a part of uh, uh, American alignment system because India, with uh, his own pride, it does not want to be a junior partner among the allies. They will really treasure the autonomy of decision-making, strategic decision-making. That's, uh, I think, is a consensus among the Chinese scholars. I'm not talking about um, the public mass. I'm talking about scholars, especially the uh, Indian watchers. I, I really believe uh, they still think uh, it's a far away uh, from uh, formal allies between these two countries. They, they really think about uh, Indians uh, really treasure his uh, autonomy. Hmm. Paul, Thank can you I for that. Yes, please do, Ashley. I, I think it's important to step back and see the forces that are at play and why this situation is still extremely fragile. You have a border that runs into many thousands of kilometers, which is fundamentally undemarcated. Uh, both sides have claims as to what they believe is their own territory. But neither side, and the blame on this specific issue lies very much with the Chinese because they have refused to exchange maps as was required by the agreements of two decades ago, which would at least delineate their claims on, on, you know, on a sheet of paper. Now, delineating the claims would not solve the border problem, but it would at least identify for the other side which territories are essentially in contestation. Now, absent this delineation on a piece of paper, both sides continue to patrol to the limits of their own claim lines. And because the claim lines intersect, because this is a disputed border, you get large number of troops essentially in close proximity to each other. Now, in the yeah. past, what used to happen was the patrols would move, they would acknowledge each other's existence, but have no confrontation. And after a brief period of patrolling, they would return back to their home bases. What has happened in the last few years is that Chinese patrols have attempted to physically obstruct Indian patrols from moving to the limits of their claim line. And this is really what triggered the events in Galwan in May of 2020. It's essentially what happened a few days ago in Arunachal Pradesh, which is on the other side of the Sino-Indian border. 
So the point I want to make is very simply mm -hmm. this. Yeah. As long as there is no delineation of claim lines on a map that is commonly shared between the two sides, and as long as both sides are patrolling in strength to the limits of their claim lines, you have one of two choices. You either allow the patrolling on either side to go unmolested, or you confront the patrols on the other side and then open the door to incidents. And unfortunately, what has happened is that the understanding that both sides were allowed patrolling unmolested has completely broken down. And now both sides are involved in physically obstructing patrols that attempt to cross what they believe is their territory. This has not changed. This is only going to get worse. I want to make a second point. Yeah. Uh, Professor Hanhua mentioned that of the seven uh, disputed pockets in Eastern Ladakh, five have resulted in, uh, in disengagement. That is absolutely correct. But behind the line of contact, as it were, there are huge numbers of Chinese and Indian military forces in very close proximity to the border. So after the crisis of May 2020, the Chinese brought in at least three, possibly four combined arms brigades in very close proximity to the Eastern Ladakh border. The Indians did the same. So you're talking of roughly 50 to 60,000 men under arms on both sides. You know, this is a recipe for all sorts of trouble because if there is a crisis, it essentially means that large numbers of forces which are fully armed could enter into a confrontation very, very quickly before political forces have a chance to intervene and, and, and you know, help things cool down. So I would just say that the situation is quite fraught and we have not seen any fundamental changes in the structural environment which might lead to the kind of optimism that, uh, you know, that Professor Hua has, has, has spoken about. Yeah, I'd like, I mean, it, it would be good to, to get your sense of, because it seems on the surface to make perfect sense that the two sides would want to exchange maps so that they know where those contested areas are and both sides try their best to sort of stay away. And I'd also like to get your view on Ashley's assertion that there was, in a sense, a change in tactics um, and then a change in, in approach, at least perceived on, on the Indian side by the Chinese. It'd be good to get, get your perspective on both of those issues, if you would. Look, I, I think um, uh, during the discussion of the talks uh, at the commander level, I think China once proposed uh, a kind of a both size uh, withdrawal from certain, I mean, distant, and then they create a kind of a buffer zone. So it's not easy for them to get back to the situation or scenario uh, in 2020, I mean, a clash. So, so I assume um, during the discussion, the Indian side uh, did not uh, uh, agree with that. So that that's, is something, uh, I mean, um, I, I don't think uh, it's a technical change. Uh, I mean, the change of tactics. I, I, I still think uh, the, the main or the core issue behind this is to uh, disagreement about uh, what the status for. 
there should be respect from both sides. The Indian sides insist they have to go back to the May of two, uh, 2020. But the Chinese side, they said uh, the Indian has already uh, changed the, uh, the, the patrol lines quite a long time ago. They checked the status quo. If they, if they talk about status quo, uh, they can talk about uh, um, 1959. That is the Chinese thinking about the status quo. That's the issue. DJ, do you want to add anything to the current current discussion, or should I move on to the next question? I'll just add one line because it's important to say this, Paul. Uh, I would like the Chinese side to show me any proof, any proof at all, that we had an agreed line of actual control on the 7th of November 1999. And if they cannot produce any proof to that, uh, to that point, then we must conclude that there was no agreement on the LAC and that every attempt by the Indian side to build an agreement or at least a common understanding has faltered because the Chinese side stalled on its promise to exchange maps. Let's um, move it to the president and think think about it, the the uh, issue moving forward. Uh, in September 2022, so just a few months ago, China and India agreed to move troops back from key positions along the line of actual control near Gogra Hot Springs. I wanted to get a sense of uh, your view on the each of you, your view on the impact of that agreement in helping to facilitate a broader agreement along the border, in particular along those contested areas, Depsang and, and Demchok. And then what will the impact be of what we just saw recently in Tawang, uh, in the uh, Arunachal Pradesh region? What's the, the, what would the impact be of that incident, again, on that broader set of negotiations? And I'll start with Ashley. So, Paul, I think we are, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we are still in a very, very fraught environment. I think the disengagement that has occurred in five of the seven contested sites in Ladakh is a good thing. Because, you know, having patrols literally a few tens of meters away from each other uh, is not a recipe for stability. But neither side has been able to reach an agreement on what they call de-escalation which is, you know, taking those large formations which exist within a few kilometers of the border and returning back, but returning them back to their peacetime stations. Now, you have to understand what the significance of this change is. The Sino-Indian border, uh, for the longest time, did not have any major Chinese military formations in close proximity. Because China's strategy for defending the border was always through the use of border defense regiments, which are very lightly armed patrol units, with the core of the PLA's combat capacity deep, deep inland. I mean, literally hundreds of kilometers inland. Now what the Chinese have done over the last two years is to actually maintain very sizable combat formations throughout the nasty Himalayan winter. 
And it looks like that these combat formations are going to remain in, you know, in position in this winter as well. So the point I want to make is that the, the danger of a conflict, which is triggered by some incident, and we just saw an incident a few days ago in the bank, is still very real. And unless both sides follow up their uh, disengagement agreements with a de-escalation agreement, which is to actually take those large combat formations and move them back to their home bases, I fear all that we have done is we've created a pause in what is going to be a long and indefinite and possibly protracted standoff with very real risks to stability. Anwar, this is an important point, and I'd love to get your view of what Ashley is describing is the, the real potential for a small incident among a small group of, of soldiers who very quickly, because of these sizable combat formations and the previously Ashley described three to four combined arms brigades, both on the Indian side and on the Chinese side, right behind these, uh, if, if a small incident happens, these units are right there, can turn very quickly into something major in terms of a crisis, which would be very difficult to manage the escalation of. Does the Chinese side share that view? Uh, is there that concern? Is there that realization? Or because of the agreement a couple months ago, is there in a sense, Kind of a false sense of uh, of, of security, or a um, even even kind of a complacence that you know we've managed to uh, uh, achieve some disengagements in five of the seven contested areas, and so therefore the situation is in a better place. When in fact, the situation could be in a more risky place than it's been uh, previous to now. How does the Chinese side see that issue? I think uh, from the spokesperson uh, who emphasized after this clash, seeing that he said that um, uh, the Indian side uh, has violated something, uh, the principle uh, that reached uh, by the two parts in uh, 1993 and 1996. That exactly talk about the, the confidence building measures, tranquility, and the non-use of arms. I, I think that that's the, the both agreements really make sure um, there's no flashpoint um, coming from the, the disputes uh, along the border. So I think as long as the both sides uh, stay with that, uh, um, province in the agreement. I don't think there's a really a problem. But the now, uh, I mean, um, you, you know, China's um, long time uh, approach to that, that issue is to really keep, uh, keep a strategic um, mobilization in place, but never to be part of the, how to say, close border position. That, that is uh, 
that's the its approach we, we took. I agree with that. But nowadays, because of the increase of the Indians um, posture along the border, that makes that makes the China um, perception about uh, what the balance of power along the, the border is has changed. So I, I believe, um, I mean, still, uh, when you talk about uh, the contested uh, area in um, Dong Shok uh, and uh, the other place, I, I think China still wants to keep the mobilization first. I, no, no, nobody in China wants to stay in a very harsh place for the longer term. Term. So if 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 we still uh, just to keep the the uh, mo mobilization capability in place, it's fine with China. I I don't think uh, it, and it, it's too costly if you really move something in and uh, how to say long term establishment in this place. It's a it's a no Chinese interest is costly. I don't think that's is China wants to change. Thank you. We've got a question from Daniel Markey, um, and it's relevant to the discussion we're having right now. So I'm going to turn to Vijay, and I'll come back to you, uh, Hanhua. Uh, and he points out the potential for escalation of border disputes could depend on how each side, how they play politically in Beijing and New Delhi. Uh, how are Chinese and Indian leaders responding to or mobilizing public sentiment? And I'll turn to Vijay to answer that first, and then I'll turn to Hanhua. I think you're on mute, Vijay. <laughs> As Ashley said, uh, the situation is certainly fraught with risk. Clearly, uh, the period of peaceful coexistence is over. We are in a period of armed coexistence, but armed coexistence doesn't mean conflict. Uh, it means that if the Chinese side believes that it will continue to station sizable forces and considerable modern technology close to the LAC, the Indian side is prepared to do the same, even if it involves substantial cost in terms of men and material. And I think this is an important point that the other side ought to recognize. If the other side continues to believe that the situation is relatively normal and stable, and that the incident that has happened in Yangste last week or in Galwan two years ago is uh, something that can be contained, then I'm afraid uh, the two sides are far apart and the risk goes up that there could be a mishap. I think what is required is a realization on the other side that Galwan has changed not just the thinking of the establishment, but the thinking of Indian public opinion, and that Chinese actions will continue to shape that, and that if trust is to be built, and without trust, India cannot pull its forces behind, and if trust is to be built, it will require more than simply words from the Chinese side that the situation was handled well in Yangtze and we have de-escalated 
and things are back on the normal track. Because frankly, Paul, they are nowhere near being back on the normal track. And how, how would you respond to that? Okay, can I make a, a, a comment first, uh, according to what uh, um, Ashley Tallis previously mentioned? I think uh, uh, Ashley just mentioned the change of technique uh, from Chinese side along the border. Uh, I think uh, um, the the I think we we, we are concerned about uh, the Indian side, the change of uh, posture and uh, tactic uh, along the border, because we uh, they have uh, I have already followed the, the discussion among the Indian uh, scholars and analysts. They talk about uh, uh, the need to uh, transform the, the defense posture along the border into deterrence by denial. So uh, I think that that means uh, quite a lot of uh, updates of equipment, uh, personnel, or other, um, I mean, restructuring uh, procedures. So that, that is uh, what I want to make uh, on that po point. But um, so um, Marky's uh, question, I, I think mm. uh, any action uh, against India cannot make uh, enough political sentiment uh, along, uh, among Chinese. We, we have too many, <laughs> we have too many issues to tackle with and uh, can mobilize some political sentiment or political consequences uh, among the, the policymakers. So I, I don't think uh, any, uh, firstly, um, the Chinese side has never um, perceived the uh, Indian as an enemy. Really, I, I still believe that because I, I'm inside the, uh, I mean, the analysts, uh, among the Chinese analysts for, uh, for South Asia. So we, we never think of that way. Uh, mm. that, that means if we treat the uh, Indian as an enemy, it doesn't mean we have again or shaped the political environment in Beijing or in other places. So that, that, that's one. And also, I think uh, we have um, a policy priority. Uh, I think, uh, Paul, you, you must be aware of that this quite uh, quite well. I think um, we have enough tough issues with the United States or other uh, main flashpoints. <laughs> so any the, one of those cannot can really make uh, the the political in, environment uh, maybe change a little bit, but mm. not not uh, the the Western border. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm going to turn to Ashley uh, to see if he wants to chime in, but I've got a couple questions, Ashley, as well, that are coming in uh, that I wanted to get your response to. Shashir Upadhyaya has asked, uh, how does China, I'm sorry, he has another question. Um, 
could Sino-India tensions spill over into the Indo-Pacific Indo uh, in the in the near term? And another question from Matthew Kennedy: uh, Could Beijing Delhi's border disputes influence the Sino-India naval competition? So basically, what are the spillover effects of what we're seeing on the border? Start by just offering one thought on Dan's original question, uh, because I think it's an important one, and it's actually quite striking in some ways. What I found fascinating about Prime Minister Modi's response to the crisis, going back to the events of, of May 2020, was how careful he was not to whip up public sentiment, despite the casualties that India suffered. In many ways, it was very it was a very interesting contrast to the way that Modi has conducted relations with Pakistan. Because when there are crises with Pakistan, uh, the government has sometimes gone out of its way to mobilize public sentiment behind very muscular policies towards Islamabad. But in the crisis involving Beijing, the government actually went out of its way to tamp down uh, public expectations of a confrontation. And it goes to the point that Vijay made earlier, which I think is really important to keep in mind, that the change in Indian attitudes towards China has now come about despite the government's efforts to minimize the extent of the crisis. Now, you can have many hypotheses as to why that is the case, uh, but I think it's important to mention this because if anything, Ever since this crisis began, New Delhi has attempted to play it down, uh, to minimize the consequences because, uh, in my view, the fear of escalation is real and the prospect of escalation does not serve India's strategic interest. So let me quickly take the other two questions that you reached. I think the Sino-Indian border crisis has already seeped into the Indo-Pacific competition. And it has seeped into the Indo-Pacific competition, partly because it intersects with US-China And so India has now become part of coalition arrangements that it had previously shied away from, the Quad being the most uh, obvious example. Uh, the effort now being to build a larger coalition of Asian states that are concerned about China to balance what is seen as Chinese assertiveness. I think the fallout effects on naval competition are not that direct, though they exist. In other words, there is a slowly evolving Sino-Indian naval rivalry in the Indian Ocean, uh, but it's hard to draw sort of causal connections with the crisis on the border, except for the fact that India now sees China as a adversary that it has to manage. And China's actions are no longer given the benefit of the doubt. And so if there is a potential for crisis in the Indian Ocean, India tends to see what is happening in the Indian Ocean as part of this larger, grander design uh, with respect to China's ambitions and Chinese assertiveness. In other words, the relationship has become so polluted that even issues that previously might have been dismissed as peripheral have now all gotten connected into this larger web of competition. And I think that is going to be a challenge for both sides to manage. We have a question coming in. It's not, a, it's, it's 
indirectly related to what we've been discussing with the border disputes, and it's about the trade relationship. And I want to turn to VJ. Despite the border issues that we've been discussing, which are quite serious in nature, trade between China and India continues to grow, uh, increasing by over 10% to reach more than 130 billion in 2022. BJ, how, how is that? What is the dynamic behind that? How is it that despite these serious issues that we're talking and the deterioration we've been talking about, the relationship between China and India, nevertheless, the trade relationship continues to grow? That's a great question, Paul. And let me uh, preface this by saying that one of the great hopes of normalization in the 1990s was that trade between the two sides would create a new bridge for the two countries to come together. And for a while it did, because trade rose from a, a billion dollars in the year 2000 to close to 50 or $60 billion by 2010. The problem is that there were more imports from China than Indian exports to China. And while some of this is structural, not all of this is structural. What is of concern to the Indian side is that despite a number of requests from the Indian side to the Chinese side to address this matter, very little has been done in practical terms by the Chinese side. It is not enough for the Chinese side to say these are market forces, because in many sectors where India has strong exports to the West, which also has high standards, such as in pharmaceuticals, in auto components, and in electronics, and in information technology services, our exports to China find it difficult to penetrate that market because of high non-tariff barriers. And the real problem, Paul, is that the Chinese either do not wish to understand or simply ignore that the trade deficit is not simply a trade issue. It is now a political problem in India at the highest levels of Indian politics, and that this view is shared across the political spectrum, whether you are in government or in the opposition. Essentially, trade is still not being weaponized by either side, and I think that is important. But on the other hand, I think Dalwan in a sense, was a watershed, not just politically, but also in economic terms, because it made the Indian side aware of the fact that unless economic dependence on China is reduced, uh, you will always be politically vulnerable. Now, uh, how do you explain the continued growth in terms of trade? Well, that's quite simple. You can't decouple immediately, nor can you decouple completely. A number of Indian export sectors are dependent on China for intermediate products, pharmaceuticals, yeah. for instance. But I think the process to find alternative suppliers or to build supply chains for certain exports and products in India has already begun. It will be rolled out over the course of the next three to four years. And what I anticipate if the program goes according to schedule, is that there will, you will start seeing a dip in the trade deficit from 2025 onwards. Now, let me be clear, it is not India's intention to decouple from China, but it is, I think, the intention of the government to ensure that simply being dependent on the Chinese supply chains 
is not only economically risky, but politically risky as well. Thank you. Hanhua, I'm gonna let you respond to that in a second, but uh, we've got, we're gonna go over by 10 minutes because we started by 10 minutes and I hope you can all stay. Uh, if you do have to drop, just please uh, uh, let me know. Um, I've got three good questions for each of you, different questions that have come in and I wanna, I wanna turn to those in the last 10 minutes. Um, and the first one will go to Han Juan. Again, you, if you want to respond to what Vijay just said about, about trade and the economic relationship, please do that. The question is on the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which continues to be a hot spot, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in China-India relations. Uh, last month, uh, Pakistan's new prime minister visited China for the first time since coming to office. Uh, what is your view of the near-term outlook for Pakistan-China ties, including the China Pakistan economic corridor, and how do you see this impacting China-India relations? Um, thank you much. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the question. Uh, I think um, um, the, the brother of uh, Nawaz Sharif, uh, when he uh, became the new prime minister, um, he was among the the first. Uh, foreign leaders uh, came to China to have a visit. So I still think uh, that shows uh, the importance of the bilateral engagement. And also when uh, Xi Jinping received uh, the prime minister from Pakistan, he said uh, the Chinese side will inject a new impetus uh, to this relationship. But I also follow some um, some media reports talking about uh, this visit. And it seems like uh, the, the people tend to believe uh, uh, the visit is a more words, uh, little action. But I still think uh, it's a first time visit. So it's a kind of uh, continuity from the prior government. It's a take the connection first and then to enforce enforce the uh, the new actions that that's a normal way for the chinese uh, culture and also i, I noticed that uh, there are some uh, new initiatives uh, during the the visit for example the 10 billion um uh, high speed uh, railway from karachi to baishawa uh, and also some um, some people to to talk about uh, the, the Chinese side would uh, open the market for the um, Pakistan agriculture uh, sector. Um, so it's a it's a new uh, wave of the bilateral um, trade. And uh, lastly, I, I think uh, Xi Jinping, um, the the president of China, has already. Um, promised uh, the prime minister that China will help to solve the financial crisis in Pakistan, even without uh, knowing the exactly uh, the figure, how much China will uh, contribute or to, how to say, roll out the, the debt. So that, that I, I think uh, with these uh, three, I think substantial, um, I mean, initiatives. 
I think the the visit is successful and uh, substantial. Not not really uh, like uh, the little action more worth. Um, and uh, of course, the the CPAC will um, make ahead um, continuously, and uh, they have already seen some uh, some uh, uh, projects already um, open for commercial use. All, all this uh, mm. shown the the the, uh, the progress of this uh, CPAC, and also uh, I. I know um, India is not very happy to see um, the the railway through the contested uh, um, Kashmir um, territory, and the Chinese side has already um, mentioned uh, to the Indian counterparts um, we are not uh, going to um, really wa want to interfere the the disputes uh, between India and Pakistan. And uh, so we, we can manage to to find uh, alternatives to, to make this uh, uh, make this a project uh, how to say more more um, built on the mutual um, mutual understanding, if not trust. Thank you. Um, we've got just a couple minutes left, and so I've got one question for Ashley and and one for VJ, and I just ask you to try to be as brief as possible in your responses. Uh, Ashley, the question to you is is something I mentioned early on about the positions on Ukraine, the Chinese position and the India position. Um, I know I often get asked, you know, how are they different and how are they similar? And so questions come in and I'm going to turn that question to you. How do you compare and contrast the India and China positions on Ukraine, on Russia and the Russian invasion of Ukraine? So I think they are superficially uh... They're superficially uh, comparable, but uh, the deep motor forces are actually quite different. Uh, India has taken the position that it has on Ukraine precisely because it does not want to leave the Russians even closer and even more dependent on China. Uh, so there is no doubt uh, in, in my mind that Delhi was deeply upset by what the Russians did in Ukraine, but they did not want to publicly criticize the Russians for fear of losing the leverage with Moscow. And this is driven by the key, I mean, there are many dimensions of the calculus, but the key element involving China is that they did not want to leave the Russians in a position where their only friends in the world uh, would be Beijing. Uh, and not others. And so for India, it was actually a matter of preserving enough leverage with Moscow uh, to be able to shape Moscow's choices, you know, as this conflict continues. China's calculation, I think, is actually quite different. Uh, they really imagined that this would be a walkover, that the world would quickly adjust to the new status quo, and that there would be only benefits to be gained by the no limits partnership with Moscow. And I think right now Xi Jinping is really reevaluating, you know, all the premises on which that joint communique uh, was negotiated. Thank you, BJ. Last question to you, and um, this is a this is a good one. Uh, as an experienced China watcher, uh, which we know you are, and former Indian ambassador to China, 
and this is actually the subject of probably another entire webinar, but if you could try to answer this as briefly as possible. What's your assessment of the 20th Party Congress for China? And how will that, in your view, what, what does that mean for the future of China-India relations? What are the implications there? Well, Paul, I would have given a different answer at the end of October. And I probably have to change my answer right now. Uh, at the end of October, it looked as if the president was in for the long haul, not just for the next five years, possibly for the next 10 or 15, uh, that the leadership was entirely united behind him and that there was really no reason for any kind of unhappiness because he enjoyed vast public support within the country. Uh, what we have, of course, seen in China in the last couple of weeks, uh, particularly the COVID protests, uh, leads me to the view that while uh, the president's position is still strong, uh, it is clearly not as completely endorsed by the Chinese people as we might imagine. Uh, now, whether this is a fact or not is difficult to say because uh, the political system in China is different from that in India or from the Western democracies as well. Uh, but uh, you can be sure that the recent events that have happened and the almost 180 degree turn that China has taken on COVID will lead many chancelleries all over the world to rethink as to how uh, strong the president's position is uh, as to how united the party is behind him and as to how uh, much of public support he will have if he undertakes policies which are not necessarily uh, deemed by the people to be the, in their interests. Uh, that having been said, I think uh, we should be prepared as Indians to deal with President Xi at least for the next five years. Uh, and I think that uh, the, the government of India is prepared to do so. Um, our own prime minister has been in office for almost 10 years. He knows President Xi quite well. Uh, and I think going forward, uh, our establishment will be able to handle that. Thank you very much. Um, it's been a terrific discussion. There, I, I, I want to apologize to all those people who sent in questions. A lot of questions flying in, but we couldn't get to all of them. Um, I apologize for the technical difficulties up front and thank you for staying on a little bit longer. Um, it's been a terrific discussion and thank you for being frank and candid in your responses. Um, a terrific discussion and, and I just wanna thank you very much for joining and look forward to continuing this discussion in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Tsai Jing Yuan and Mike Tiernan. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.